Hey, it's your Kali. What's up? You are about to listen to facts, stories, interviews, gossip, and much more fascinating things that will be so stunning, there's a possibility that your mind will blow. This show will start five, four, three, two, one. Hey guys, you're listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio broadcasting live from Studio Y Yolokali in Little Village. I'm here with Patina Chang. What's up? Hey Jocelyn, good to be here. We're so excited for today. So I heard you guys won the Rising Star Award. Thank you. Yeah, we did. Uh, City Bureau, which is a civic journalism lab based in Woodlawn here in Chicago, what we do is we make journalism more accessible to everybody. And one of the things that just happened, which was sort of crazy, was that we won the Rising Star Award from the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, which is a group that does really cool First Amendment work all around the country. And yeah, I guess they uh, they appreciated how how we make uh, media more democratic, and everyone who's going to be on the show today is part of that. So we're really pumped about it. You guys have a collab. Yeah, well, we have been for a few months now with Yolo Kali. You guys have been great to work with. And for the past seven weeks, in fact, our reporting fellows have been working with the students here on some uh, neighborhood reporting stories uh, that we're going to share. Okay, cool. So I have a question for you, actually. How do people follow along in follow along with City Girl? Like, Oh yeah, well you know we're we're on the gram. We're at city underscore bureau. We're also on Twitter at city underscore bureau, and you can check out our work. We do lots of free workshops. Um, you can do free trainings with us. You can get paid to do assignments at citybureau.org. Cool, cool. What would you say media changing over time like? Yeah, so uh, our all of our reporting teams have been working on some of these topics about the overarching theme I think is change Um, you know and especially the first team is looking into uh, how media has changed over time but we're also going to be talking about neighborhood change and we're also going to be talking about uh, how maternal health has changed over time in America so we've got actually four great topics today uh, and I think it's like 13 or 14 audio pieces to share too. Oh, cool. Um, well, why don't, why don't we bring them in? Yeah, we'd love to yeah. bring some people up here. We've got Max, who is working with Camila, and uh, also Young Ray, who's working with Oscar. They are the first team that are up today, and we're so excited to present their story. So Max and Young Ray are, are uh, two of our photo fellows. Um, They are working on projects all around the city, doing photography, uh, photojournalism, which is a really tough job where you've got to lug around a lot of equipment. And they do such a great job. I mean, it's, it's amazing to see them work and how they put together photos that 
really represent the people that are covered in our stories. So, so glad to have these two pairs of mentees, and that's Max and Camila, as well as Young Ray and Oscar, here to introduce their team's work today. Yep. Hey. So I'm Max Herman. I'm Camila. Hi, I'm Young Ray Kim. And I'm Oscar. So basically, me and my mentor, we were working on our audio piece, right? And this audio piece has um, taken a lot of turns, considering the fact that, like, our original idea was, like, talking to, like, people I've taken pictures of. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, so early on in the, the mentorship, um, I noticed that Camila took a lot of portraits that she seemed really connected to her subjects. A lot of them were friends, family, so, like, we had this idea that she would, like, maybe interview family members or friends and talk about that connection and how she made them seemingly so at ease in her portraits. Um, it kind of really stood out to me. So that changed a little bit along the way, but also I did show her some of my portraits like through my website. Um, and I was thinking about a portrait of my grandmother, like it was like in her last weeks. And I was just like, this is kind of, it really depends on how you know this person. That'll really affect how the photo comes out in the end. Um, you can see that sense of connection with, uh, with the subject so that was really like the gist of what we worked on and while it did change i think that uh, it's still about that that connection between photographer and subject so um camilla can talk a little bit about uh how who she talked to in the end um and i think it's uh, pretty interesting so originally um the idea was to interview people i've taken pictures of but that didn't work out sadly but what it ended up being is that I went out and I did a Vox Populi. What a Vox Populi is, is that you go around, you ask like three questions to people and then they answer and you make an audio piece out of it. So I went to like the local um, grade school, right? And there was a lot of um, girls there aging from like varying from like six to like six to freshman year of high school, right? And what I did was that I asked them, like, how do they feel when they're photographed or how do they feel when people take pictures of them? And um, surprisingly enough, all of the responses were like, I feel insecure. I feel like I'm not up to standards. I feel like, you know, I'm not comfortable in my own skin. And that kind of really stood out to me because my plan wasn't to, like, make an audio piece about, you know, insecurity and all that. You know, my original, like thing was like how do you feel when you're photographed but all their answers were like very similar to one another and it's kind of sad how you know young girls are taking on like this role of like I don't feel like I'm worthy enough to be in a picture because I'm not considered pretty enough to society and that was really um devastating hearing that especially from like girls that are like really young you know and yeah this audio piece really touches a little bit on my heart but yeah so how do you think that relates to um, like the way that most people take selfies now? Is that do people feel more comfortable taking photos of themselves because they're afraid of what other people are going to see when they take photos of them? Yeah, I think that definitely adds on to something because I feel like as a photographer, you're kind of like obligated to make the person look really well, right? And the reason why I did this audio piece was because I noticed that every photographer, when they have a subject, they always focus on a feature of the subject that they want to, like, you know, include. And it talks about it in the audio piece. Mm -hmm. So Camila, the, uh, so Max is a professional photojournalist. He's worked all over the city. Yeah, he's for... super cool. <laughs> what are some of the things that you guys taught each other while you were working together? Well, he helped me um, 
you know, where to get my camera. So I'm very excited about that. And he also taught me some tricks on like lighting and like how to like um, separate the, the subject from a background. That's super cool. So I learned a lot about audio from Camilla, like um, just where she sources music, um, how she puts together intros to a piece. Like I, I had no experience in that at all. And I think that was like super helpful to see how that works in practice because I had never seen it put together. And also she showed me a lot of her spoken word work, which is incredible. You should check her out, her work. And um, so yeah, I just learned more about all the different um, talents that she has. Yeah, and portraits. She's, she's really good at studio, um, using studio lighting too. Um, a lot of the portraits she's taken here at Yolo Kali are really incredible. And um, yeah, so we kind of talked a lot about portraits throughout the, the Saturdays that we were together. So I understand you guys have an audio. Perfect. Let's listen to that. When I take pictures of people, I always focus on finding a detail that stands out to me. When I say detail, I'm talking about something I find beautiful. Something that complements their face or image as a whole. Whether it's their smile, their eyes, their lips, their cheeks, their eyelashes, even their noses. Every single person has a feature that stands out. Taking a picture without capturing can turn into the worst thing you can do as a photographer. But how can one know what's their complemented feature when society tells them in every shape and form that they're not worthy of a picture? How can a person be so convinced that there's nothing in them to love? Who told these young girls that they're not good enough? How may we as a society help our young girls push for self-love and confidence? <laughs> My name is Araceli. I'm a freshman. My name is Evelyn Sanchez, grade 8. My name is Maria Aguilar. I'm in 6th grade. What would you do if somebody came up to you and was like, oh, let me take a picture of you? Like, how do you feel about that? Honestly, it would depend on, like, for what. Mm -hmm. um, like... <laughs> Did you ever consider about doing modeling? No. I feel like I'm not... I, I myself don't feel worthy enough to be, like, in photo shoots. Um, the fact that I'm not happy with the way my body is shaped. I don't have the... I don't have as much self-confidence as everybody. I don't have as much self-esteem as I wish I had. Because, <laughs> um, I feel like I don't look pretty. My body, I guess. I guess other people's opinions and statements. I don't know, like, uh, social media, you Because know? they have, like, uh, an expectation for everybody. If someone posts a picture, or if I post a picture, then I feel like people are going to hate on me. I guess that scares me a little. Wow. That really struck home. That was, yeah. wow. It hits a nerve. It does. Oh, my God. Gosh, that was really nice. Um, Thank you. 
you did amazing thank you <laughs> all right well on to oscar and young Gu. all right well hello there my name's oscar of course <laughs> hi this is young ray all right and for our segment of the show we actually interviewed some local kids from our area and we asked them about their personal experiences when playing video games now you're probably thinking to yourself why is that well something that we wanted to learn was not only their personal experiences in the games but also what work goes into immersing these players into these games something important to me was the media that goes into making these pieces of art you know like so immersive so realistic what draws people in and what keeps them hooked. So something that I definitely um, heard a lot was, you know, like some, like it was really minor details, more or less, like how there was birds chirping in the background, or you can hear maybe like the cars passing by zoning in the streets, or maybe you can hear like yelling, like a short yell in the background, or just people chit-chatting, talking, whatnot, just creating an atmosphere more or less is what immerses you because it's more like, I believe it's more like a soundtrack maybe for music, you know? It's just something that needs to be believable. And if you like it, then, it, you know, you're just more invested into it. Um, that's more or less what I got from it. Anything you want to add, Young Ray? Uh, I was looking at a couple of um, game videos um, with Oscar um, when we first met and talked about, you know, sharing different ideas for the project. And one of the things we noticed was um, the improvement of sound of recent games that came out compared to the old 8-bit games like Super Mario and how the changes of sound and the advancement of technology allowed us to um, be immersed in um, in this big industry called gaming market. Exactly. That's definitely some part of the research that we did was uh, we invested some time into looking into, like you said, the transition from maybe 8-bit, 16-bit, and 32-bit as we go on as to how sound evolved from how the games were then to how we have them now. How a simple tone or a simple song like Mario, something that maybe sounds you know familiar like a ringtone now, went to like full blown soundtracks, orchestrations, all these big songs now. Like you even have like licensed artists making soundtracks for these titles now, and it's just it's amazing to hear it all now. It's just great. It's almost like you're listening to like a live piece that comes with your game. It's so crazy. They even sell soundtracks now with games. Believe it or not, they usually bundle them. It's, it's 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 crazy how the community, the fans themselves, ask for the music that is used in the back of the game. It's so cool. How did they bungle the soundtracks? Well, from personal experience, uh, someone who plays uh, on a personal computer, I've seen um, digital titles usually bundled with their soundtracks. Like when I go to the storefront, the digital storefront that sells or distributes these games, you'll see the game itself for who knows. Uh, maybe you found it for fifty dollars. And then you'll see the game with the soundtrack included um, for like an additional $10. I'm, you imagine that buying them both separate would cost them quite a bit more. Um, but, you know, they usually just bundle them and fans really appreciate that. I know I do. It's, it's pretty cool to be able to listen to that in the background when, when doing any and other, you know, like stuff on the computer <laughs> or whatnot. What I think is interesting about uh, the soundtrack for a video game is like when a video game designer puts like a visual detail into the game, it's really possible that someone won't see it, right? Because you're like moving around like the point of view of the viewer. But if it, there's going to be a sound in the game, everyone's going to hear it. Exactly. And another thing that I appreciate about the soundtrack about games is that, again, not only do they you know, succeed in like keeping you captivated into the title, but sometimes they even motivate your actions in the game. 
something I've noticed when I play a, an older title, like for, for instance, a Mario game, is when you hear the music and it goes, bump, bump, it's like it motivates me to jump, jump. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well maybe I got to move to the rhythm of the song. You don't know that, but it's, it, it's something you want to try. It's really cool. So, Oscar, uh, this is what, your second or third time being mentored by a, a City Bureau fellow? Oh, yes, this is my uh, second. Well, I've had plenty of fellows with me, and I appreciate every one of their help. But, yeah, this is, uh, this is my second time. And this is Young Ray's first City Bureau fellowship. So how did you guys feel about the uh, mentorship experience? Well, I know that I appreciate the help that I received from the mentors. They kept, they, um, Young Ray and, uh, well, Young Ray was very helpful in helping keep me on track. I know that when I first started the project, I had a uh, little trouble settling on a topic. I was more or less everywhere. Um, I had a pretty broad, de um, pretty broad subject on, so, oh, why don't we just talk about, like, you know, sounds and games and, like, uh, you know, like, how cool they are, but more or less we shaped it into rather than how cool they are, what they do, how they contribute to the experience, and how not only youth, but like gamers all around utilize it to like get immersed into the experience, you know? But building on that, I know that we've come out with, uh, you know, we got tons of information back from lo local kids here in our community, and I'm pretty happy to say that I'm, I'm happy with the answers we got. A lot of them were really creative. Some of them I didn't even expect, but I could say that for a fact I spoke to a lot of retro gamers. <laughs> yeah, we got some uh, got some classic throwback titles on there. Mm -hmm. This is Young Ray. For me, um, one of the things that I learned from um, working with Oscar was how you know how much of first of all how much of interest he had in um, gaming, and it was not just a matter of you know um, when I was young and playing games. It was it was not a matter of just killing times. It was more more of a passion and learning about how all this works. Um, I feel like the, the passion I get from Oscar is the biggest thing that I'm kind of being, you know, motivated to, to pursue my own project. Because um, like he was saying, uh, sometimes it's super hard to find a really good topic that will work within the time frame that we have. And I think Oscar did an amazing job. So. Thank you. I feel like we did an amazing job as well. <laughs> we actually have an audio piece that we're looking forward to sharing with you guys, and we appreciate if you guys took a listen, so please stick around. My name is Oscar, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we're going to be discussing the importance of sound in media. Overall, the idea is how we're all drawn together by media. However, for this segment, I will be focusing on how sounds in video games immerse gamers, like you and I, into their respective in-game scenarios. For your listening pleasure, I went around my local community and gathered interviews from some local gamers. Please enjoy. Hello, I'm Alec, and I'm 24 years old. All right, hello, Alec. Uh, so without further ado, 
Do you appreciate the work that goes into immersing you into games, like making a game real for you in terms of sound? Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> in video games, um, I think the sound and the atmosphere is really important, like really important um, to me. Um, since the 16-bit era, just saying beep beep beep, boop bop bop, to now like do 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 do. I don't know. The, just the small things. Um, what are some of your favorite games? My favorite games? Um, has to be the Star Wars Battlefront. The nice. original ones, one and two. Um, I had so much fun with the first one. I recently bought that one for, the, for my Xbox One. Um, I played so much. I like the levels. I just wish in Battlefront 2 they had some levels from Battlefront 1. But yeah, I also play this. The new Battlefront 2, it's fun. Um, I like the new things they added, the art troopers, and the special classes, and yeah, I think the in the in the you know in the the level design is really beautiful. The um, you know the Geonosis and and uh, Hoth, my favorite one. Camino is my favorite one. I mainly played the Clone Wars era <laughs> in the game in those games. If you only knew the power of the dark side. Hello, my name is Gerardo Hernandez and I'm age 14. How would your gaming experience change if there wasn't any sounds? Well, honestly there wouldn't be. It would be boring and hard to talk about with friends because a lot of sounds from games, like we could, we could use it in the outside, like it's me, Mario, or something like that. You would go out to a friend and be like, it's me, Gerardo, or it's me, something like that. It's me, Mario! So what do you know about how sounds are, you know, for games are created? Let's say they like sitting down, they grab a pen, they start just hitting the desk and out of nowhere they come up with this like sick beat and they're like, oh, I could use this for like a background music for a video or, or a game. But when you're talking about sounds, um, probably since a coin for like Mario, it's a ding. Hello, my name is Emilio and I'm 18. So, what do you know about how sounds for games are created? Well, I know, I don't know if it's true or not, but I just know that, you know, when they used to put like sounds in movies and stuff, they use like balloons or like they use real stuff. Let's say they use a basement to do a sound of like the, the storm and they use like this little big steel and they move it. So I feel like they use that too for the games, I'm not sure, but I have an idea that they kind of do that thing too. Hey guys, welcome back. You are listening to WLPNLP, Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio, broadcasting live from Studio Y, Yolokali in Little Village. Um, so we have Jenny and Sebastian. What's up, guys? Hi. Hello. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are you guys, like, what are you doing? So my city bureau team or our city bureau team is working on stories about 
churches in Pilsen and how it's a changing landscape. Because the Archdiocese announced in 2016 that they were going to consolidate six churches into three. And so we've been following kind of how that has changed the... Um, the neighborhood along with a bunch of other stuff but it's just like this one very specific look into how communities are changing and how public spaces are becoming private spaces and like worship spaces are becoming um, spaces that not everyone can go to so uh, yeah so we were looking at gentrification and so that's why me and Sebastian were working on a piece that was about gentrification more broadly and trying to like look outside of just Pilsen and getting an idea of what people think about it yeah we were uh well we decided to like yeah talk about gentrification because uh you know yeah so yeah that's what we basically uh, decided to do so (laughs) so jenny um you know neighborhood change in pilsen is certainly not new um and people have been writing about churches in the area for some time so I, i guess i'm curious what do you and your team think needs to be added to the conversation Ooh, that's a great question. I feel like um, there's a lot of misinformation or maybe just lack of information about how churches are being sold or the decision to close them is being made. And I think that that's maybe a metaphor for the broader changes that happen that people don't find out about until it's too late or it already happens. Um, So I think the perspective that we're getting is like one where people are getting information and two like what is at stake so like one of the things that we did is we spent time with uh via crucis which is the reenactment of the 14 stages of the cross and it was just like a really intense incredible community experience that like if you are not part of a church community is really easy to miss um, even though they take up 18th Street and, you know, they process down and it was just like very emotional and a lot of took a lot of planning. We went to a rehearsal and it was just like, wow, people really love, love, love this space. And like, what does it mean when it's gone? And I think that a lot of gentrification reporting right now just talks about the like the numbers or the developer and not necessarily the like emotions behind it. Or maybe that's like a narrative thread, but it's not the center. And so I feel like our reporting team has done an incredible job of like really talking to people and getting a sense of, you know, what does this mean to you and why, why should we care about it? Why should everyone else care about it? And Sebastian, the, this is a pretty big topic, but you chose to focus on gentrification. So what is it about gentrification that made you interested in that part specifically? You know, I don't know. I mean, I guess because like, I think it was uh, interesting because like it's going on like in Pilsen and all of that because like, you know, like two weeks ago, I was on 18th Street, and I was like seeing. I was I just saw like, there like a bunch of, like yuppies and all that, like a bunch of people like all over 18th Street, and I was all like, damn, this used to be like a bunch of Mexicans, and now like they're all just like it's all disappearing. I see these new buildings and all that. So, yeah, I was all like, yes, yeah, like, you know, it's like it's interesting. So I, just, you know, decided to to like focus on that. Yeah, and Sebastian was also talking about how because he's from Little Village, and so he was just like, I don't know, gentrification, like, I don't know if it's going to come here. And so we had a lot of conversations about, like, well, what does it actually mean to you? And, like, does gentrification look like once there's already a bunch of new restaurants or, like, new bars or new people? Or, like, does it start earlier on? And, like, how... And so Sebastian was like, I don't know. And then we did this piece. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um... 
so can you tell us like the background like what the general information for your piece i guess oh sure do you want to take it away it's your piece like what well, like what do you want me to say okay well sebastian is an incredible narrative storyteller he's like really excellent at telling stories and so i was like let's get you to interview lots of people so that you can like pull it out of them the way that you just naturally produce it and so he asked a bunch of people in the program about what they think gentrification is and whether they think it's like good bad or neutral because i think we often think about these things as like very polarizing i don't know it's just like you either think it's great or bad maybe and so he got some nuanced answers from folks what yeah. else what else did you get I mean, like like well the majority of the people i interviewed like they were all saying that it's bad because like you know like a group of people who are in that like for example like group of people who are in a community like they're getting pushed away and like all their culture and all that like it's also like going off with them and like these like new people are just like moving in and they're taking uh like like they're just like it's sort of like an invasion basically so like they're just invading that area and like now those people gotta leave because like they don't have enough money to, to afford to pay rent or something like that so yeah all right um how about we listen to the audio Does yeah that, sound cool? that yeah. sounds great yeah. the term gentrification refers to processes by which higher income or higher status people relocate to or invest in low-income urban neighborhoods. These neighborhoods have historically been disinvested by both the public and private sector. And so as higher-income people <clears throat> move to these areas, it's typically to capitalize on the low property values. In doing so, they inflate property values, displace low-income people and fundamentally alter the culture and character of the neighborhood. Uh, what's your name and age? My name is Malik Alim. I'm 26 years old. My name is Ariel Ramirez, age 18. My name is Sarah Conway, and I am 32 years old. My name is Andrea Hart, and I am 32 years old. What neighborhood are you from? I'm from Little Village. How long have you lived there? I've lived there for about 16 years. Okay. Can you define what gentrification is? Um, to me, gentrification is when um, when a community is um, is shifted economically, and that changes the culture of of that community. So, um, in other words, it is when um, when the people who created the culture of a neighborhood can no longer afford to live there, and a new group of people with a different type of culture comes in and pushes them out um, in a way that is not dope. People who aren't part of a community and are like an outsider in some sense uh, come in and try to profit off of the land in an area. 
Gentrification is, it's a product of a lot of systems of supremacy and oppression. And it's, it's, it is violent. It's not like some of the traditional forms of violence when we think of violence. Um, but it's definitely, it's sort of like an economically violent practice of pushing out people so that you can, so that fewer people can benefit from resources, community resources. That's, that's one way to put it. Um, but yeah, but a lot of it involves like it, taking people's agency and like and place and homes away from them. it's good bad or are you neutral with gentrification I mean uh, I guess it's kind of it's, it's bad I mean it's not bad it's I mean it brings new things to the table right like it brings like businesses and stuff like new places around there I mean that, that's that's what kind of makes it good I guess so I guess it's good yeah I guess I guess it's good I think gentrification is bad. I do think that there are ways to develop neighborhoods and not push people out. But I do think gentrification itself is a bad version of that. I think it's bad. I think like the real issues are is like why doesn't the city invest more in communities and make sure that people can stay there through like aff- building more affordable housing or just like improving in- infrastructure or investment over time where like people who have built up an area and that's their home they can also enjoy like you know improved act- access to public transportation or you know other uh other resources I th- so I'm on the fence that it's bad or not on the fence I want to say like I'm of opinion that it's bad um and I think like people shouldn't be pushed out of their homes I think in a lot of ways gentrification is bad, um, but I think it's the responsibility of people who care about communities to make sure that they can get better um, while still preserving the people, the culture, the language, um, all of that stuff that makes a community what it is. talking about mm-hmm. churches and the neighborhood change, right, Patina? Yeah, thanks, Jocelyn. Uh, City Bureau here. Um, our fellows are working with Yolo Kali students to tell some stories. Uh, we're really excited to have Irene and Adrian here to share about theirs. Me and Irene, we worked, we went over, we went over a lot of ideas. We started off by, you know, listing off a lot of things uh, that we either knew or that we had a as ideas for our audio piece. And we ended up with, well, what you guys are going to listen to in a little bit. And Irene interviewed Lucia, right? Lucia. Lucia. Mm-hmm. And so that also helped to bring more ideas to the table and what we were going to talk about throughout the audio piece. 
And our, our team is focusing really on the churches that are closing in Pilsen, but part of that is um, like the displacement that happens to people. And one thing that we've noticed that is missing from a lot of the coverage and the stories about both closing down the churches and gentrification is like the, the like feelings, like how that feels, like what is actually happening and what is the analysis of people that are living in those places. Uh, so w the person that I interviewed that you're going to listen to is somebody that we met during Via Crucis, actually. And she is just so great at talking about like what exactly is happening in Pilsen, given that she's been a resident there for like more than 35 years. And, you know, what she talks about is that like gentrification, there's a lot of policy decisions that are made before it happens, uh, right? And she talks about like every single thing that she's noticing about the changes in the neighborhood, like what's happening. And also I really like at the end that she closes it off with like giving us hope, right? Like that no matter like what happens, people gotta fight that displacement, that you can't just, you know, let yourself be moved easily, but that there's always more struggle that needs to happen in order to, you know, fight for your place, fight for, for who you are, your community. And this is something too that we thought like was really interesting, I think for both of us, right? Because in the beginning we talked about how immigration was a really important topic for us that we were interested in. And this is kind of like in that same vein, right? The same displacement that drives people to like have to come here is the same thing that forces people to be displaced from their communities here. So you guys have, you're telling me a personal connection to the, to the ideas that you covered in this story. So how does that change the way that you tell the story? I think it was just we were able to kind of connect to um, Lucia and we were able to kind of explain it a little bit better and we were able to, you know, interpret what she was talking about. We were able to understand what she was talking about it. So when we talked about it too, we weren't, you know, confused what, on what she was talking about. We were able to talk about it and have that same connection that she does. And Adrian too was also really good at looking into like some of those numbers too and statistics of what's happening in Pilsen to give it context um, for those who like might not necessarily know, which I think is really good that it's in there as well. So what are what would you say was your favorite part about your own audio? Like putting it together? I think listening to the finished product. Because <laughs> it was really rough at the beginning. But then after, you know, adding music and all of that, it sounded really, really good. Yeah. And also trying to figure out what parts to highlight from, like, somebody's interview I think is hard. But we found at least what was most, like, appealing to us. How about we listen in? Cool. Yeah. All right. Beginning in 2000, Pilsen saw a decline in the Latino population due to rising housing costs. According to research done by WTDW earlier this year, not only people are being removed, churches are also being sold to make room for the construction of high-priced condos. In 2016, the St. Anne's Parish was merged with St. Paul and was sold in January of this year for $1.35 million, according to Block Club Chicago. People in the neighborhood were surprised, saddened, and angered and see this as another example of a century-old building that's removed to make room for expensive housing that many of them won't be able to afford. One of these people is Lucia Carabes, a longtime resident of the Pilsen neighborhood who has seen the many changes in the passing years. La mayor parte de gente este se ha ido porque las rentas han subido demasiado. Ella ahí nomás nos estamos quedando los que 
los que tratamos de, de poder con la renta porque están arriba ya te sale la renta más cara que ni que si tú estuvieras pagando tu propia casa y ya mucha gente no, no hay ya ahorita lo que hay y lo que atrae más gente desde viernes, sábado y domingo pura güera, morena china de toda pero es nada más para puro, puro ambiente de los restaurantes como tienen barra y todo y ya casi gente como uno ya ya casi no la distingues, eh, ya ha cambiado porque ya el barrio se está quedando, se puede decir sola de gente mexicana. Antes le nombran que el barrio mexicano, pero ya de mexicano ya casi no hay. Y de las rentas, eh, las suben porque tumban las más viejas y las compran bien compradas, por eso se va la gente y, y levantan condominios y pues te cobran hasta lo último. Nosotros pagamos 1.600 con biles, aparte los biles, ¿te imaginas? Hay una persona que gana ella este poquito, no puede con la renta y mejor se va a vivir a donde pueda pagar la renta. Hey, pues no, que ojalá Dios quiera que, que todas las personas ahí este, se se unan y que nunca se vayan, que traten de buscar donde se acomoden y donde estén a gusto y contentas y que no porque traten de, de echar a uno eh, este, para otros lugares se tenga uno que ir. Eh, que uno es de aquí, que uno tiene que seguir aquí porque no van a venir los de afuera a sacar a los de adentro. Uno hay que echarle ganas y seguir adelante. So now we have Juan Pablo and Diego. What's up? Hey. Oh, hey. <laughs> hey, guys. Happy to be here. Um, so what's going on with your piece? Give us a general rundown. So in City Bureau, what my team is looking at is churches that are closing, right? Um, especially the, ch the, the organizations that rally around these churches um, to save them, to preserve them. Um, and what those strategies look like. Um, and it was really fortunate because when I met Diego, he's going through his confirmation, which is one of the sacraments in the Catholic Church yeah. um, that happens around like the time you're 16 to 18. Um, and essentially what it means is that you are reaffirming your faith to the Catholic Church. Um, and so I think this was really interesting because both Diego and I um, subscribe to LGBT lifestyles. Um, that's just who we are, right? Um, and the Catholic Church has this really um, controversial past with um, LGBT people. So when it came to Diego and uh, his confirmation, reaffirming that also means something else, right? Because you're reaffirming your faith to a organization that in the past has um, had some of those bigoted views on homosexuality, right? Um, and so that's kind of what this project gets into. Yeah. You want to get into it, Diego? Uh, yes. So, like, like I said, like, I'm doing my confirmation, and, like, when he brought this up, I was like, okay, like, I, I want to do this. Like, I want to get more into it, because it's like, like he said, like, yeah, 
um, the church has a very controversial past with LGBT. And even though my church is very now becoming very open, like they have people who are gay helping out in the church too, and they're very accepting of it. But um, in the last year, when I was doing my confirmation, or like when I'm pre like pre when I was preparing to do my confirmation for the first year, um, our catechist, the people who teach you like the faith and everything. Um, he was very homophobic and he was very sexist. Camila knows about it. <laughs> um, and like he showed us a film about like the role of a man and a woman. And, and all, in the role, I mean, in the film, it was also very homophobic. And it was like, oh boy, like, and none of us really spoke up about it. I don't know why we didn't, but it happened. And there was also a girl, her name was Amelia. And she, she has two parents. I mean, she, well, yeah, she has two parents, but she has two moms. And she took offense to that, and she actually left because of it. And then one time, he, he would always, like, ask, can I pray for you guys? And he would take us out into the hallway individually. And he wanted to pray for me. Uh, but the things he would say in that prayer were like, um, sis. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, that? No, that doesn't add up. Like, no. <laughs> and I was just like, um, so when he brought, when Gio, when Gio, sorry, when Juan Pablo brought this up, I just, I wanted to like, see what other people thought about like the Catholic Church, specifically people my age, what they thought. Like, do they, are they religious or are they like, what are their views on everything? Um, okay, well, you guys have your audio piece, right? Yeah. Cool, let's play that. Hi guys, it's Didi, and welcome back to the Gigi and Didi show. Except without Gigi, because she was getting on my last nerve. Okay. But this week, I was feeling a little spiritual, got down on my knees, said a few prayers, amen sister, and thought, why not ask other people of what they think of the Catholic Church and us fellow queens? Yes, I said it, queens. And as a proud member of the LGBT community, we've had a controversial relationship with our fellow Catholics. So this is me asking my sisters what they think. So how are you doing today? Fine, how are you doing? I'm doing great, okay. What do you think about the Catholic Church then? I don't like churches at all. I just like the ideology of religion because like it grabs everyone in peace and it obviously like promotes optimism as at some certain level. But um, I think churches more like take over that optimism and like basically kind of manipulate people. You think that it's outdated, the church? Churches, yeah, they're outdated. Okay. Why, why do you think they're outdated? Because a lot of these ideologies are from like, you know, like, let's say like even the most recent one is like from like the early like 1600s or something. Mm -hmm. So like these ideologies are still like very extremely old and like you're bringing this here and now in the 21st century, which is like we have a lot of more modern stuff. Get me? Yeah, totally. Um, then uh, let me ask you this. Can you tell me what's the church's position on gay people? Um, okay, so from the Catholic Church and from the ones I've seen, um, so something about how there's an expert that we don't judge other people. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
technically the catholic church is not supposed to be judging and on anyone but i do see that there's some type of prejudice towards um people who are in the lgbtq community but like yeah obviously they're not supposed to do that hi mary how are you doing today i'm doing great what religion are you um i don't really well my family is like catholic but me i don't really associate myself with catholic like i do believe in like religion and stuff like that but me myself i wouldn't say i'm a believer you wouldn't call yourself religious no okay that's fine the interview just cuts off okay <laughs> no can you tell me what the church's position on gay people and the whole lgbt Ooh, that's a tricky question like for some uh like for some churches i know they're like really open because uh they'll like you know love conquers all and so I love, because like that's basically what like jesus or like any god they believe into like messages is like between all sins stuff like that like love conquers all but there's like still some churches um that use the bible to like say oh you know homosexuality is wrong and i'm like but there's all these other things in the Bible that you're still doing and yeah. you don't or like they'll still use that one very old outdated text and it's just really really tricky to get around because like some of them are open some of them are not and you don't know which one is which so hi Gio how are you doing today I'm doing great what religion are you I am Catholic well then what do you think about the Catholic Church right now um, I think the Catholic Church right now is getting slightly better. Only, well, at least in my church it is, just because we started seeing um, some priests give awareness to those in the LGBTQ community, and they've been actually praising them and not actually, like, going down on them, because I know in some churches they would, um, like, you would have to go confess your, your sexuality, and if you confess that you are gay or anything from the LGBTQ plus community, then... They, should, they would automatically tell you to be ashamed of yourself and they wouldn't like forgive your um like what you came to confess for you know um, um so then do you think it's outdated um like what do you mean like, like is it still very old-fashioned i think the catholic church now is much less old-fashioned than it was before but I feel like that's just recent, recently happening right now. Hi, Nine. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing okay. Alright. Uh, so, I just brought you in here. Sorry for, like, taking you out of whatever you're doing. Um, so, let me ask you a couple questions. Good real quick. Mm -hmm. um, so, what religion are you? I don't consider to have a, like, to follow religion. Um, but I think um, I do follow a spiritual practice. Um but not necessarily like a religion. So it would be like more into like Buddhist teachings. Uh, mm -hmm. So then you wouldn't really call yourself a religion? No. So then by my guess, you're very supportive of the LGBT community? Yes, of course. So then uh, what do you think about this comment by Pope Francis about the community saying that it doesn't matter, God made you like this, God loves you like this? Is he referring that like it doesn't matter like what you choose to be or who you choose to represent? That's yeah. what he said. I think that's awesome, but it doesn't do much when a lot of places that look up to the Pope are not implementing those beliefs. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's kind of like yeah, like saying I don't know if it's saying it so you know like people can feel um, safe, you know, within. Mm -hmm. 
the Catholic atmosphere. But um, I don't think it means much if a lot is not being done to show actual support. So we are sitting with Malik and Damien, right? Hello. So give us the rundown of your piece, guys. What's going on? We're doing uh, about your, uh, Pastor Vic. We're doing a piece about pa Pastor Vic. Yeah, and, and it's, it's funny because our, um, our piece kind of started in a similar place that um, Juan Pablo's and Diego's did. We, we wanted, again, we're, we're all on the, the Pilsen Church team, um, and we wanted to kind of figure out, you know, if people in this program uh, could represent, you know, the larger community and why you know, young people seem to be less religious than they've been in the past. But that took a turn because we found out about um, a program that started in a church in Little Village um, and has become something bigger. We found out about the youth program. They made Pastor Vic to keep kids out of gangs and all that. To keep kids, like, out of gangs and all that, you know? Like, so they could have, like, a better life so they won't be, like, outside, you know? So that's why he made that program for boxing, the kids to defend themselves and all that. That's great. And uh, what was it like to talk to Pastor Vic? Was he fun to interview? Well, actually, Pastor Vic has passed away earlier this year. Um, so this is kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking back on the impact that he's made um, on, on this community um, and remembering him and honoring his legacy. All right. So let's uh, hear what you guys have uh, come up with. Pastor Vic died earlier this year, but his spirit lives on in La Villera. He was a really big impact on the community, especially among you who were caught up in the gang culture. He ran a boxing program called the Chicago Youth Boxing Club. He was a father to the kids he mentored. Pastor Vic helped keep kids in school and find a better way to spend their time and energy instead of on the streets. He loved the kids he worked with, and they loved and respect him just as much. He was born in Nuevo Ideal in the Mexican state of Durango. Young Victor moved to Chicago with his immigrant parents when he was around nine. He spent to Whitney grade school and Farragut. Pastor Vic was very proud to be Mexican, and he was proud to live in the Vita. He never wanted to have a legacy. He always shined light on others. All right, so Damien, we're talking about boxing, right? And how it can help young people avoid gangs. But to me, it seems a little counterproductive, right? Like, how does teaching kids how to fight prevent violence? Um, it's because people learn how to defend themselves instead of using guns. It's a different type of violence. Back in the day, they did not use guns. They used their hands. Okay, I feel you. That makes sense, but it's still violence, right? Uh, it would be technically violence, but the thing is, if you use fighting instead of a gun, gun, gun violence, like you don't want to be that guy that doesn't know how to defend himself. Okay. It's like, it's like a martial art, right? Like in martial arts, you learn discipline and respect and it's not actually about violence. 
It's about making sure you respect yourself and making sure that if you find yourself in a situation, you know how to react responsibly and defend yourself. I do know how to defend myself, but I just don't fight. I don't see myself as a fighting type. I'm a quiet guy. I don't start fights. So do you think Pastor Vic's boxing program was helpful for young people who might be like you? I would say it was really helpful because you're teaching yourself how to fight. It keeps your attention focused. Instead of going outside and doing a bunch of stuff, you're learning how to defend yourself. That's a great point. I think, like, in Chicago, a lot of young people, you know, especially on the south side and on the west side, they deal with a lot of issues related to gangs and gun violence and things like that. So it sounds like it's a pretty good situation for for folks to to get into. Do you think the community will miss Pastor Vic and how he's presented this to the community? Um, A lot of people will miss him because he made this program for kids. The kids look at him as a father. They will miss him, obviously, because, like, he was a great guy. He made this boxing program so kids won't be always outside, like, doing gangs and all that. He helped them, like, get boxing program. They learn how to fight. They learn how to be like that. They have fun, and they socialize like that. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know if you... Have you ever done boxing before? I never did boxing, but sometimes I do practice at home, Mm -hmm. you know? I I do workout, whatever. Like, I do pull-ups sometimes. I go to a park and do pull-ups. Yeah, one one thing that I've noticed about um about you know fighting sports and just combat sports like that is that people learn um they learn how to be a, a family a little bit right like they after you know you do a little bit of sparring when you come out on the other side you respect and you love the person that you were you were practicing with a little bit more you think that's true yeah that is true for sure well rest in peace Pastor Vic um, we hope that your legacy will live on. Um, in La Vita, um, and we wish you the best and your family the best. I wish you the best as well, and you're uh, inspiring to kids. Rest in peace. Hey guys, welcome back. My name is Jocelyn. I'm here with Patina Chang, and you are listening to WLPNLP, Chicago 105.5 FM. Lumpin' Radio broadcasting live from Yolokali in Little Village in Studio Y. So, Patina, what's going on? Recaps. Awesome. So, hour number two, we just spent some time listening to City Bureau reporting fellows and Yolokali students. And uh, over the past seven weeks, we've been doing some neighborhood reporting stories together, which has been really great. Um, And the two topics that we have gone over so far is how media is changing and about churches and how they affect neighborhoods. Uh, So, what do you think, Jocelyn? What was your favorite story so far? I, I honestly liked both of them. There were a lot of, I loved all the audio pieces. I thought they all had a piece um, that I can take personally away from today. So I liked it. I liked all of them personally. I can't choose a favorite. <laughs> I love how so many people interviewed students in the program. We got to hear so many voices and yeah. people's opinions on stuff. Um, yeah, I, I also really love the music choices. I have really terrible <laughs> music choices. It's okay, so. <laughs> It's great that I'm surrounded by people who are much better than me at that. Um, yeah, so at City Bureau, we've, we've been covering a lot of stories. Um, we Everything about City Bureau is making sure that people have access to media, and especially starting with young people, and that's why we're so glad to be partnering with Yolo Kali, um, and we have been for the last year now. Um, I just want to give a quick shout-out to Stephanie, who does awesome work here at Yolo Kali. 
And without her, you wouldn't even be able to listen to these audio pieces. So um, we're so glad to be here. And thanks so much for having us, Jocelyn. Yeah. Um, so sitting with us is Sarah and Emmanuel. What's up, guys? Hey. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, so what's the general info about your piece? Sure. So um, we are part of a team uh, that is looking at racial inequities in maternal health. Um, our kind of general topic is maternal health for the spring. And we've been really trying to approach it by focusing on voices of women, um, people who have been impacted by maternal health care in the U.S. and in Chicago specifically, especially on the south and the west sides of the city, and then like grassroots solutions to the maternal health crisis. Um, there's a lot of grim statistics out there about how more women are dying right now in the U.S. than about 20 years ago. Um, so the maternal mortality rate is increasing here. And we wanted to look at, um, you know, that's really important and we want to honor that um, because a lot of those women are kind of like invisibilized. Um, uh, just in general from how we collect statistics in the U.S. to media coverage because it's a sensitive topic. But we wanted to look at people doing work on the ground, and a lot of those people are birth workers. Um, so doulas, midwives, et cetera. Um, so that was kind of like a general theme for our team, our city bureau team. And we were very fortunate to work with a lot of the great students at Yolo Kali this spring. And so um, our series of stories are around moms and women and maternal health. Yeah. <laughs> and Emmanuel, do you want to talk about, hey. Hi, Sarah. Wow. Hi. So nice to see you. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I made an audio piece um, for the project, and um, my description is pretty basic. I just thought about my love for my mother and how I could convert that into audio without having to say, I love you. <laughs> so I just pretty much made an audio piece on the topic of womanhood. Yeah. Can you tell them about what your mom does, though? Oh, yes. Um, so my mom's career, she's a lactation specialist. So, you know, she's always dealing with mothers and, like, pregnancy. And um, she teaches mothers how to um, breastfeed properly. So she, And um, on top of that, she does centering. She goes to um, visit mothers and check in with them at hospitals. So, you know, she's like um, the mom superhero for moms. <laughs> yeah. And I know, Sarah, you're a mom, too. Yeah. And we have a few moms in this room. So, And it's tomorrow is Mother's Day. So Yay. big there shout out to all the moms out there doing some really hard work and still here with us today. Yeah, I think you all are going to love Emmanuel's piece. It's very mom-centered and woman-centered. Yeah. Cause yes, because um, it, it, it is just like um, a Vox Populi, um, just different women's opinions i got um older women youth i got mothers non-mothers so i tried to just get women um um what i i was wondering because like i saw that sweatshirt manual love it thank you that Congrats was like life. that was a good <laughs> flashback you guys can see it if you're on yola kali's facebook live there hey everyone go. that's viewing <laughs> so um, so with that ooh, I'm very loud right now so with that um, what would you say what, like you mentioned midwives and all that what 
who was harder to get in contact for interview wise? Um, I think, well, we're doing like a series of stories. So I want to say um, the the photographer, one of the photographers this spring um, is Caroline Olson, who's sitting about five feet from me. Um, she's focusing on birth workers, um, specifically birth workers of color and, and black birth workers. So that's doulas and midwives. And I think um, between uh, Caroline's research and interviewing and um, kind of the research that other team members have been doing as well, uh, they have not been that hard to find. I think that's what's been really interesting is that oftentimes you hear from the medical establishment that they can't find black doulas or black midwives, um, especially when there's like stories that are written or um, there are panels. But for us, I think it was pretty easy to find people, which is I think, you know, kind of and says something interesting about a lot of bias that you kind of find like you can find a lot of people on Google or through Facebook or through Instagram. Um, so there's a lot of people out there that are doing this work. Um, so Patina, what, what things stick out to you so far? Well, I'm really excited to hear this piece because I feel like I have been hearing a lot about Emmanuel's mom and I can't wait to hear her voice. Hmm. Well, she's actually not in my audience. Yet. The spirit oh, is there. Well, she's, no. in, she's there in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> She's there in the passion and love that I it's put It's a tearjerker. Into. Yeah. <laughs> tearjerker. All right. Well, let's <laughs> give it a listen. I think of birth as like extreme pain. Scary. Animal brain. The creation of something beautiful. Scary. Body crippling, blackout inducing pain. <laughs> beautiful? Uh, difficult. I would describe birth as difficult. Because I mean, you're like under pressure, like, ah, I gotta make this life come. So uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, yes. As defined by Google, Childbirth, also known as labor and delivery, is the ending of a pregnancy by one or more babies leaving a woman's uterus by vaginal passage or cesarean section. As a woman, I believe birth is a miraculous superpower. I do have a distinct smell from my mother. Uh, she, I, she smells like either coffee and then she always wears like a vanilla perfume. Yeah, there's like, she definitely has a smell that like I I like live far away from my mom so when I go back to visit her like this the way that the house smells is like the way that my mom smells and like that's interesting I've never thought about that tie but yeah definitely she like has a smell that is special to me that I like only associate with her so my opinion on breastfeeding it's, it's natural it's best I mean um, I mean, whatever is good for a baby and good for mom is, is in the end what's best. I feel like breastfeeding is just like a natural thing, you know? I feel like, yeah, there is like a time and place for it, but it's also just like meant to like feed your baby, right? And it's like, if you don't like seeing a mother breastfeeding her child in public, then look away. I think like it shouldn't even be like that much of a, an exaggeration yeah. like it's a natural thing obviously if the baby's hungry then you have to feed it like um it's just an exaggeration that people like to actually become offended by it or like disturbed it's 
just a mother feeding its child. It's nothing else. And like, if you think it's sexual or whatever, you're weird, you know? Yeah. If you don't like it, then that's look your away. problem. Look, look away. Yeah. My mom breastfeed us, so she was always like, you have great motor skills because <laughs> I breastfed you. She's always like talking big game, but like breast is best, I agree, but um, also you just have to be there for moms. Like not everybody can do everything, so you have to kind of just like meet people where they are and support them to, to, to feed and help their babies be healthy. How would I define motherhood? Oh, geez. Uh, you got me there, buddy. Um, it's a roller coaster ride. And I love roller coasters, so that's a good thing. So for me, it is a roller coaster ride. You're like scared, but like living your best life. And sometimes you don't know what's ahead, but it's still like this really great time that you're having uh, in the end. And you just feel proud and want to cry all the time when you see your kid like go perform or like do radio shows or things like that. Mm. <laughs> I understand it as the process of like creating a space for your child to be themselves where you can guide them through things that are difficult to understand. Um, I, and I also think about it as a learning process, like I'm not a mom yet, but I spend a lot of time with my partner's three-year-olds. And a lot of it is me realizing that I have certain like barriers and like anxieties and I can work, I can be a better person for a kid to be around by taking care of those. And I learned so much from being around him. Being care, um, caring for um, another human being forever. It could be an animal, a person, or a simple as a plant. If I'm a mother, I guess, yes, I have my plants and my kitty. So definitely I talk to my plants and I care about them. I try to, you know, be there for them and for my cat too. Love. Literally the first rhythm that you ever knew was your mother's heartbeat. And you synced your heartbeat to your mother's. You listened to it. You knew her voice, you knew her heartbeat, you knew her entire world before she like really knew you because you were like living inside of her. Women are amazing. We're just like so powerful. We're like, we're queens. We're, we're awesome. My name is Melissa. Stephanie. Camille Powell. Sarah. Camila. Emmeline Posner. Whitney Leanne Ross. Jenny Casas. Vanessa Ann Sanchez. My name is Hanan Hanafi, and I'm a proud mama. We are here with Caroline and Melissa. Hello. Hi. So give us a general piece of your, uh, general information of your piece. So mine was about um, asthma and how it affects mothers and infants. And then I started to relate how it affects everyone as a whole. So I started, um, the person I interviewed, she started tackling how it also affects people like adults, um, elderly, infants, kids, and how it's like, I think a very like cause and effect thing if like these like pollutants are happening in the air then it obviously affects everyone but i think the more serious thing is like development of a child which starts 
once you're an infant and how it can like affect you once you're older. So yeah, um, I interviewed um, this teacher of mine in my school and she coaches cross country and um, I don't know, she just had a really good insight of it because she also takes um, takes account of like air pollution. She's a, she tracks the levels of um, air, like I don't know, the pollution in air. And um, she, how I mentioned, she crosses, um, she coaches cross country so she also has like that own experience about like breathing in these fumes, these toxic fumes, these diesel fumes, and actually seeing the effects of it. And how she also mentioned that when she was pregnant, she had um, trouble breathing. So yeah. Um, and I'm Caroline. I'm the City Bureau Fellow. I've been working on the photo story about different birth workers, and one aspect of that is um, learning about the work of doulas. Doulas are really focused on um, reducing the stress levels for moms and providing emotional support. And um, one thing that can cause high stress levels, particularly in communities of color, are um, things like Melissa's story discusses, like environmental stress factors. Um, and they are doing a lot of work to uh, help moms deal with that stress and um, support better birth outcomes. Uh, so I'm excited to learn from Melissa's story um, and what she found. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so how about we listen to that great audio piece then? Yo estoy totalmente contra mucho tráfico que afecta el ambiente, puede poner a nuestros hijos en peligro. Promover la realidad de los problemas en cual tenemos. Nos están envenenando, señoras y señores. Eso es la realidad. Nos están envenenando, señoras y señores. Nos están envenenando, señoras y señores. Nos están envenenando, señoras y señores. Eso es la realidad. These are the 22nd Aldermanic candidates talking about the Hilco Warehouse at a forum before the 2019 election. The Hilco Warehouse, which will be located on 34th and Pulaski, will be one million square foot distribution center. Previously, this site hosted the Crawford Warehouse, a coal-fired power plant that impacted the air pollution around the neighborhood in Little Village. Now, people are concerned about the diesel emissions from the diesel trucks that will come to Hilco and the alarming air quality. This has affected the number of children in Little Village with respiratory problems. Therefore, Crawford was closed because of the harm it committed to its residents. Air pollution is especially hard on kids and pregnant women. According to the Department of Public Health, children in Little Village were three times more likely to go to the emergency room for respiratory problems. That's a 93.3 to 140.8 for 10,000 kids affected in Little Village. My name is Sue Nelson. I'm a teacher at Social Justice High School. I teach biology and AP biology. Um, I also coach cross country. used to coach track and I'm a member also of the Learning Garden team that's going to be starting up here in hopefully a little under a month. I do know that it causes a lot of like sociological type problems. I mean when, people, when kids have asthma they miss a lot of school which is was one of the things back even 10 years ago when people were talking about asthma rates in this community that were, was a concern is that so many people were missing jobs and were missing school because they had to go to the doctor. Either they didn't have it controlled because they couldn't, they couldn't get the medicines they needed um, or they were spending time going to the emergency room because they didn't have, you know, health care that was taking care of them appropriately to try to manage the asthma. Kids are at higher risk of developing respiratory problems because their lungs are growing and because they breathe through their mouth, which avoids the filtering process they have in their nose. Definitely asthma tends to impact the weakest. 
people with immune systems that are weakened, young, young kids, and also very old people. I would say that both of those groups are impacted more by pollution. I do know when I was pregnant with all three of my kids, I had concern when I was breathing it in because, you know, anything you eat or, or breathe in basically crosses, you know, to your fetus. Studies show that pregnant women who are exposed to air pollution by vehicles and power plants are more likely to have children of low birth weight. This is a risk factor for infant mortality, childhood illness, and adult cardiovascular disease. Organizations like El Vejo, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, are activists and advocate on the harmful toxins industrial places like Crawford have emitted in the community of Little Village. I would love to see Little Village be a cleaner community for the people living here, for my students, for, for me breathing stuff in, for my kids. It's hard to want to be healthy when, you, when, it's, when it feels like you can't breathe well when you go outside. I'm a runner, but I, I think any type of exercise is hard when you are feeling fumes. So I think anybody who's outside and active here is potentially putting their health in a little bit of risk. And I think also it doesn't encourage people to be healthier. You know, even like as a runner running around Little Village, there aren't very many places where you want to run because it feels, A, it's not really conducive to pedestrians, but B, like you feel like you're breathing in stuff that's gross. I run always up 31st Street over the bridge. Once you get over the bridge, it's okay, but over the bridge, it's really awful, right? We used to run up Pulaski or up Cicero, even if you run down 31st Street the other way or Costner the other way, like none of those places are really good for running. And so, you know, I'm a runner, you don't have to be a runner to notice that. Like, people need to be able to go outside in their community and feel like they can exercise, they can be active, you know, to be healthy. Patina, we have a few guests want to introduce. Yeah, we're glad to have Camille and Gerardo here with us today. Tell us all about your story. Oh, so um, we came up with, um, we were talking about teen mother issues and how it affects teen moms like knowing that a teenage girl gets pregnant but it ruins their plans or you know it just it's just a topic uh, that's interesting to me i guess it's a very controversial topic yes and um yeah so we um, we were in our group. We were discussing maternal um, issues. I specifically am discussing maternal mental health, and um, so Gerardo and I were speaking about the issues that we're really passionate about regarding maternal um, maternal um, issues. And so uh, he expressed interest in teen motherhood, parent. Um, Teen Parenthood, and so um, we delved into that into his piece. So, um, did you? How did you guys do this? Did you go around and interview like young ladies who happened to be pregnant at the time? Yeah, um, I just uh, we were interviewing young ladies because it just like we just wanted to get opinions for them to like think about if they were in those shoes. What would they do if they were pregnant? Like, would it like would they stop like doing the plants they had in mind? Like, cause babies is too much. You have to buy like a lot of stuff for them, a crib, bib, food. So yeah, 
you have to maintain them so it kind of ruins your plans that you had like <laughs> hanging out with friends and stuff all right well i'm honestly interested to hear about um all the different paths that they have and what they think about it so oh, okay how about we do that Hi, my name is Gerardo Hernandez, and I'm here with... Gloria, this is Nine. What do you think is the biggest issues facing in teen parents? I think that some issues that teen parents face, well, one, for start, being a teen, you know, already, like, you already have a lot to deal with, and let alone having kids, um, it's hard to get your life going and also taking care of another life because it's not like a toy. You have to be responsible and make sure that you're teaching a route to somebody else. So let alone you're building your life, but you're building a new life that you brought to the world. Are teen parents independent from their parents? Meaning, are they still their responsibility? So I feel like that has to do with how parents parent their kids differently. Um, for example, I feel like just because a parent has a teen with a kid does not mean that they have to disown them. So I do think they are separate human beings, but at the end of the day, those are still their parents and they should be supporting their kids because let alone, they also guided their kids to take these steps and they're in these situations, so why leave them alone? And whether you're young or old, your parents are still your parents. So. I don't think it's too much separation there, but the responsibilities are separate because you, as a teen, you decided to have a kid and you were supported by your parents, but this is something that you're gonna have to eventually start taking upon yourself because your parents won't always be there. How do you think pregnancy can affect a teenager's life? Pregnancy can affect a teenager's life because they have to go in a different direction from what they planned on because they're not thinking about themselves anymore and it can also bring something good because it can help a teen be more focused and like have more hope for themselves because not only is this is not for them anymore they have a kid so i mean there's pros and cons either it can mess with your your schedule and what you had planned but it, it can also help you just focus on yourself your future and the future of your child so we are back once again we have talked about the media changing over time churches neighborhooding and neighborhood change and maternal health Great. Well, really excited to have Gio and Jenea here to tell us all about their story. So what did you guys cover? Um, okay, so we kind of wanted to get into like, um, like same couples, like, and how like their parenting is seen, I guess. Um, so because like, we kind of brought up the question, like, hmm, like, how do you might like create a family? when you're like in the same sex relationship, you know, like we question that because um, like we both know people, like I have friends and Janae has friends, like she knows people, we, uh, we both know people that like um, were either raised by like two moms or two dads or, and it's like, we just find it fascinating. Like we want to explore that, you know, like their families too. Yeah. <laughs> 
And also, again, I'm on the maternal health team for City Bureau, and so we kind of wanted to merge our interests. And so thinking about families in a more general sense, and then Geo's really into queer stories. So we kind of wanted to merge the two and kind of have a story yeah. on, um, from a child, from the child's perspective, what it's like to grow up with um, two moms. So we're gonna be see- we're gonna be hearing the child's perspective, not like the actual parents' perspective. Yeah, yes. well, I mean, and he isn't a child anymore. He's an yeah. adult. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah um, a librarian and rapper named Roy Kenzie. Um, he was raised by two um, lesbians, and so we asked him a few questions, and um, yeah. Okay, yes. I actually am very interested in this, so <laughs> I want to listen to it now. Yes. Let's go. My name is Roy Kenzie. I'm 33. I grew up near Austin, um, Belmont Cragen, also like Division of Pulaski, North Avenue of Pulaski. Um, so west side of Chicago, basically. My neighborhoods w- went from um, low income to middle class, from apartments to you know, a house, our first house. Um, and then in the neighborhood that is mainly Polish, Italian, uh, once I got, you know, a little bit older. Nervous, excited, or both to talk about my family situation. Uh, I've been talking about my family for a while. Um, when it comes to these albums, these records. Uh, so I, I love talking about my family because I love my family and I love where I came from and the older that I get. I realize that uh, it's a blessing to have come from there and from them. So um, I'm excited about that. I am in a session right now. My parents are queer. I was raised by two lesbian women from the time that I was about six or seven years old. Up until now, my parents are still together. Uh, they met when I had to go, when I had to start going to a after school program. After my grandmother was paralyzed, she fell out of a window and I couldn't stay at home with her anymore. She couldn't come and pick me up from school anymore. So my mom put me into an after school program and that's where they met. Uh, my life growing up with my parents was really, really great because both of them were there and they supported each other. They loved each other. They love each other. I used to and still do love watching them dance together. They can step really well, um, you know, which is a deep Chicago tradition. But to watch these two women uh, add their own style in it and have such a rhythm together, um, I think that that's really beautiful to see. And so I was always fascinated by watching them dance together. As a child, uh, I I don't know if I really felt like my family was different from everyone else's because so many of our family friends, um, you know, my family's friends were also lesbian. My parents' uh, friends were lesbian and had kids. So we were around um, other kids that were kind of like us and we traveled and performed and just went around, you know. Um, we just had a really good social circle. And then we were supported by our family. So we also had our family around and they just got along great. So it was very positive, it was very rich, it was very uh, influential, it was very musical and entertaining. Um, 
We had a lot of parties, a lot of celebrations, just a lot of love around us. For a long time, I, 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 my family, <laughs> the funniest story, the funniest thing is that my family, they lived together for years before they came out and told us that they were lesbian. And I don't know what I was thinking the entire time. I think I thought that they were just roommates or really best friends or really good friends. Because it really was, it wasn't like they showed that they were publicly showing affection to one another like that. And then looking back, I'm like, how did you not know? But because they slept in the, you know, they did sleep in the same bed, but I don't know. It's, it just wasn't something that was registering for me as a young child. That when I got older, then I, re then I understood. I remember a time in seventh grade when I was on my Washington DC trip and I had called home and talked to my brother and my brother said something about, uh, that somebody from school has said something about us having lesbian parents, but it never really went like deep, like somebody said something that was super judgmental. A lot of times it was in inquiring, but I don't really remember anything that was like super vicious. I mean, we didn't really experience a lot of that. So if people were talking, they probably were talking behind my back, I guess. Uh, a lot of people really didn't have anything to say, but I think that people probably were just more curious than anything. And um, even when I was be beginning to show my sexuality in different ways, then that's when I kind of uh, noticed, because I got into a, you know, a, a disagreement when I was in high school about somebody that was asking around if I was gay. And I remember confronting that person and being like, well, if you want to know, then you need to ask me and not ask that other person. And though I was right, I realized that I was super defensive because it felt like I was possibly being outed, but it also helped me to evade the question. Um, and so, you know, if you're out and whatever, it'd be like, yeah, somebody asked if you gay, you'd be like, yeah, I'm gay, what? Uh, when people would question my parents' relationship, uh, I would say that, that's, that that was my godmom for a really, really long time. I would say that Deborah was my godmother. Um, and then it, people didn't really pry too much, but I think I began to tell the story more and more as I got older. So as I got older, I started to be like, well, this is what's going on, this is what's happening. You know, and my family is blended. Like I'm from my mom, but they're from, you know, they're from her, but we're all one big family type of thing. What did you learn about same-sex couples making a family? through your parents. I learned about chosen family. I loved I loved being uh I learned about surrounding yourself with the people that you love, that you want to be around and that the bonds that you create, you know, that you can really create your family uh, and it, and it could be empowering, it could be uh, reflective of what you believe, what your values are. Yeah, I learned that through my parents' relationships and how dependable they are on one another. Family for me is being able to depend on someone, a responsibility, um, honoring past and present and future, making plans together, uh, making good decisions on behalf of one another, um, protecting, uh, serving, quality time, 
I'd like to thank my parents for stability. I'd like to thank my parents for always showing up for me and no matter what I was doing, when I was finding myself, they were always supportive and they wanted to support me and they wanted to show up and wanted to come to games after school or wanted to come and still come and actually even perform in my shows with me. Uh, I love that I learned about what true family was in this uh, non-traditional family. That was the reflection of family that I had is that, you know, the people that I grew up with, like my brother and sister, who are my brother and sister, are not from the same parents, right? We don't have a, a blood biological relation, but we have a bond um, that way. So I would love to thank my, my parents for family and, and being able to depend on them. A lesson that I've learned from my parents that I live by uh, something that I try to think uh, about is something that we say is like, your mama didn't teach you like that. Your mama didn't raise you like that. So um, really just always having a home training that precedes me that, you know, when I step into a room or when I talk to somebody, I am a reflection of where I came from. I'm a reflection of who raised me. And so uh, I really try to think about that and really try to serve my family well and be a really good example of my family. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpin Radio, broadcasting live from Studio Y in Yolokali, Little Village. We are introducing Team 4, which they are talking about the neighborhood development. Yeah, uh, the City Bureau here um, to chat about some stories, and really excited here, Jocelyn. Thanks so much to introduce uh, Kim and Gloria on team number four. Uh, Kim, do you want to tell us about what your City Bureau team has been working on? Yes, um, the Woodlawn team has been hard at work this cycle talking about neighborhood development in the Woodlawn community. And under that kind of umbrella idea of development, we've been talking about things like um, what makes a neighborhood, why people stay, displacement, what is home. And that's really, I think, uh, something that's evident in all of the stories from the students this cycle. And how about you, Gloria? What, what interested you in that topic? Um, so I, at first, I didn't know much about Woodlawn except the fact that um, my uncle had just moved there, and he's also not familiar with the neighborhood. So um, I felt like it was a good time to document sort of like his transition to like why he ended up in Woodlawn. And that's basically like what my audio piece is about. Um, there's like um, some information about where he was at before. He was at a nursing home in Midway, and then through a program, he was able to obtain an apartment for him to live on his own with his fiance, and he's able to enjoy the neighborhood now instead of living in a nursing home. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, what was your favorite part about this whole thing? I think my favorite part was interviewing my uncle. Um, in a sense, it was sort of healing because um, he had an incident, which is why he ended up being disabled and, and then ended up at a nursing home. 
And I mean, we struggled with the incident and what happened, but we never really talked about how it was impacting him, although it was obvious, and how it was impacting us as his family. So um, I think it was pretty healing for him too. Um, you can kind of hear it in his voice when you hear the audio. And yeah. Um, honestly, I, I kind of want to, I really want to listen now. <laughs> so um, let's, let's play it. Let's go. Woodlawn is a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago covering the 60th between Lake Michigan and Martin Luther King Drive. I don't know much about Woodlawn except that my uncle Jose just moved there. Hi, I'm Jose Luis Beltran. My age is 37 and I just came out from a nursing home. I got shot. That's why, you know, I can't move my legs or my hands. But the thing is that I was in a nursing home for two years, six months, and a couple of days. Like many institutional facilities, this nursing home had many restrictions upon the residents. Some restrictions are necessary but others made residents like my uncle feel trapped. Let alone, the facility had too many patients and not enough staff to properly care for the residents. I mean, I don't know, these people from the certain nursing home, they think the worst of a patient. Instead of comprehending them, they just, just think the worst. It's like if you were a child, like you were, you weren't able to speak up. For, for me, to be honest, that made me feel like wordless. Wordless and like, I know this ain't the end of me. I knew he would be able to continue moving forward with his life despite of his disability, but I wonder when it would happen. A social worker referred my uncle to a case manager in the Colbert Consent Decree Project. Hi, I'm Diana Molina. I'm Jose Beltran's fiance. When they started going into the program, they put him on the list of a program, which is this cover program, and then the lady came out. She spoke with both of us. She said, we're gonna help you out as much, you know, we can. This project is the product of the Colbert versus Rauner lawsuit, which according to the State of Illinois Department on Aging, alleged that individuals are being unnecessarily segregated and institutionalized in nursing facilities in Cook County that are in violation of the ADA and Rehabilitation Act. Through the Colbert Consent Decree, the state has agreed to provide the necessary supports and services to enable class members to live in the most integrated community settings appropriate to their needs. Hmm, unnecessarily segregated and institutionalized? Sounds familiar, Chicago? Anyway, my uncle went through the procedure and evaluation required by the program in order to obtain an apartment. Thanks to this, he now lives in an apartment that fits his needs and other resources that the Colbert Consent Decree Project provides. They, they check a lot of things. You know, it's not easy, but at the same time, it's not difficult. Now that I'm adopting to my apartment, I can eat what I want, I could ask for water without even having nurses or CNAs being like, give me a second. You know what I mean? It's like, I love it. 
it would have been way more better if it would have been around the community that I grew up with or in than, you know, where I'm at, but I, I love it. But we, we doing pretty good. You know, now he can, when he's hungry, he'll eat. When he's tired, he'll get put to bed, you know. I hope many people who live in Cook County and are in similar situations as my uncle can benefit from this project and resume with their lives. And for everyone listening, please be aware of people with disabilities as it is not the only factor they struggle with in today's society. No audio piece does justice to what my uncle has dealt with these past three years after his incident. But moving to an apartment in Woodlawn is definitely the start of a new beginning for him. Although he is new to the neighborhood, he enjoys being able to explore Jackson Park along other outside spaces. You know what I mean? I got the lake right there, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just pretty much like pretty quiet, but it's pretty cool at the same time because nobody disrespects nobody. Okay. You know what I mean? So we are sitting with H and Gael. What's up, guys? Hey, how's it going? Hello. <laughs> Tell us all about your story. What you cover? So I think one of the things that we talked a little bit about when we first started, um, when we first met each other, one of the things that we both knew right off the bat is that we're both really, really into Star Wars, which I think you all had a whole show on that a couple of weeks ago, right? How, was, how did that go? It was a great show. I had cool. a, I really enjoyed listening to it. They chose great music, um, including the Cantina song. Awesome. <laughs> I thought that was an excellent choice. That's an excellent song, yeah. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the Cantina song. More on that later. But <laughs> so one of the things we spent a lot of time talking about was um, Star Wars, and we both kind of nerded out a little bit. Would you, would you say it's safe to say we nerded out a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, we were kind of nerding out about that, and we were also thinking about kind of why are we both so into Star Wars? Like, what is it about this particular sci-fi fantasy show or that makes us so excited about it? So we spent a little bit of time, especially because neither of us have really done a ton of audio before, thinking about how, like, what is it about Star Wars and science, fa um, science fiction and fantasy that is so powerful? And usually it's that it reminds us of our own lives in some way. So that's kind of what we were interested in exploring. Um, and as we were looking at I know I was doing a lot of work looking in Woodlawn and seeing some of the ways the development is happening there. Um, I live in like Uptown Ravenswood where there's also a lot of development and a lot of changes. And then we were talking a lot about Little Village and we were thinking about the different ways that development and changes to a neighborhood impact sort of how it feels to walk around there. And like, it sounds a little goofy maybe, but it also reminded us of Star Wars, right? Like you see how that changes all of these different planets, like they have different vibes, they, they act in different ways. Like when you're there, you act in different ways. So we were thinking about how could we cover that without, um, like how could we capture that, right? Like how could we capture what's happening on Star Wars, what we see in the places we're going and, and talk more about that. What did I miss? I missed a lot. I think that was pretty much it. Okay, cool. So, this is now my excuse to talk about Star Wars. Thank Great. you guys. Thank you <laughs> <Excellent>. very much. <laughs> Always happy to provide that. Perfect. But 
I wanted to ask what were what were some of the things that in your audio piece that you found hard to find like mm. interviewing or there wasn't really like there wasn't really like that much things that were like hard to find because like more like my audio piece is like mostly about like what I've been experiencing uh, when living in living in Little Village. So like, I mean, it wasn't really like that difficult, but yeah. Honestly, I want to really hear your audio now, guys. Let's listen in now. Great. <laughs> My name is Gail and I'm 13 years old. I like Star Wars and I live in Little Village. Little Village feels like an actual village. By that I mean it's small. Mostly Hispanic, and I know a lot of people who live here. Little Village is the neighborhood I've been living in for most of my life. I really like going to the parks here. Walking around in parks makes me feel relaxed. Like a safe space for me. Sometimes living in Little Village can be hard at all. At night in the afternoon, and when the weather changes from winter to summer, gangs are out more, and it feels more dangerous to go outside. I don't really know when it's, when it's safe or not to go outside. And even when it is safe, that could change at any time. That's stressful, so I stay home. It's boring. There's not a lot to do at home, but it's safer than going outside. Sometimes when I'm stuck inside, I watch Star Wars. Either fan videos about series, or the movies and cartoons. I like the storytelling of Star Wars. There's so much happening about all the different characters, planets, and factions. It all ties together, but it's complicated. The Republic, the good guys, do bad things, just like the Empire, the bad guys. The villains are sometimes really cool, like Darth Sidious, and the good guys can be terrible, like Jar Jar Binks. I also like Star Wars because it's about the ways that normal people who aren't Jedi, or really important, deal with everything that's happening to them. I'm not gonna lie, but the planet tattooing reminds me of Little Village. Tatooine is a deserted desert planet with no laws. It's a stressful place to be in. Even when it is safe, that could change at any time. There's so much happening in Little Village, it all ties together, but it's complicated. Alright, and we're back. We're back from Tatooine, and now sitting on the couch at Yolo Kali, this is Bettina from City Bureau, and I've got two City Bureau fellows here with me, Sierra and Demario. How you guys doing? Doing all right. Doing Glad pretty to be good. Here. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. All right. Well, tell tell us about the stories that you guys have been covering this spring. Yeah, so um, as someone mentioned a little bit earlier, um, we have been working specifically in the Woodlawn community. We started off with just kind of this big picture idea around neighborhood development, specifically in the Woodlawn community on the south side and the High Park community on the south side. And then we just kind of realized as we were doing a lot of research and doing a lot of digging that we were really just interested specifically in Woodlawn because it just has a great history of a lot of change over the past 50 years and is expected to see a lot more change probably in the next five to 10 years um, with things like the Obama Presidential Center that's going to be building in the next couple, I want to say maybe five, 10 years, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, we're, it's a neighborhood that's seen a lot of change and also there's a lot of institutional influences that really impact the community with major institutions like the University of Chicago, some major churches, major developers. And we wanted to really just hear from the community themselves. So yeah, Demario probably can talk a little bit about the zine that we've been working on. Yeah, so a big part of our project, and I think one of the things that we were really interested in like got a lot of momentum in early on 
especially like when we honed in into Woodlawn was just this idea of like what community resources, like what ways can we really engage the community that may exist outside of traditional journalism, sorry, um, something that might be outside of like to the traditional norm of like an article or a website posting. Um, we want to do something that could, you know, kind of meet people where they were. Um, and so we kind of had this idea of like making like a zine and like, you know, something that would be very edible and digestible for the community, um, something that hopefully resonates with them. Um, and there's also a resource as well. So like, you know, just thinking about the different elements we can include, like we had this really cool idea of like doing like a choose your own adventure, like what it would look like and like, you know, not bandersnatch or anything, but like, you know, how cool that would be to play with ideas like that. So we've been having a lot of fun, I think, with the project. Yeah, um, and also I think some of the big questions that we've been asking, especially with the zine, is like what does it take when you see just like empty lots and empty buildings in a neighborhood? How do you get from that to a building? Right. And what does that look like? And a it's lot of people process. just don't know that process, and we felt like a lot of people specifically in the Woodlawn community would benefit from that knowledge. Um, the other thing that we've been working on along with the zine is a photo series specifically on Woodlawn residents that have lived in the community a really long time. As I mentioned earlier, um, there's just a lot of institutional influences that just really have a say on what gets built in the community. And we just wanted to know from people who've been li living there for maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years, what do you want your community to look like? What's your vision for the community? Like, what do you hope will stay? What do you hope will change? And also more importantly, like, why do you stay? Um, so we hope that in collecting all these different narratives from all these longtime Woodlawn residents that we hope to do like a photo audio essay um, with their stories, so. Great, thanks, Sierra. Um, now, Les, one last thing before we go. In absentia, uh, Demario, your mentee, Alec, is unable to be here today, sadly. Mm -hmm. But do you want to tell us, just give us a quick uh, uh, ex explanation of what his piece is? Absolutely. I mean, Alec is a really cool guy. I really enjoyed uh, working with him on this project. It was kind of cool to be paired with somebody who was so into sports, and like he really kind of got like my creative juices back um, thinking about that stuff. And so, like, he has this really cool project. I think you guys will really be interested in it, where he's uh, sitting down with the owner of a professional wrestling league, and they're talking a little bit about how professional wrestling can exist in community spaces like abandoned theaters and like you know gymnasiums and stuff like that, how can they see themselves fitting into the cultural dynamic of Chicago and its diversity? Professional wrestling found its origins as parts of traveling carnivals, sideshows, and circuses to being broadcasted worldwide. Just last year, the WWE had an operating income of $62 million. On local levels, we see pro wrestling circuits evolve from gymnasiums, theaters, bars, to slowly making it into arenas. I sat down with freelance wrestling owner Matt Nix to talk about wrestling in Chicago and its growth and expansion and more communities. Founder of freelance as well, like I just, it was 20, uh, 2014, I just was not really having fun with wrestling and I figured I wanted to just do something different, do something on my own. Um, I didn't really expect it to last like as long as it has, I mean we're coming up on five years now. and. Um, you know, it, it was just something, because the, the Chicago wrestling scene has been very, like, dry for, like, the longest time, and, and so many other companies have come and gone trying to, like, 
you know, break the mold and, and try to do something different. Uh, and we kind of did that with like, you know, initially having like bands play at our, at our events as well. Uh, just having it be of more like punk rock vibe and stuff, because that's like the, that's the scene that I, that I, you know, gravitate towards. And I wanted to combine like two of my favorite things, you know, music and wrestling and then, and just, you know, make it this weird party as opposed to just like a wrestling show. And we marketed it. I, I, I always say I market the shows towards uh, fans of, uh, fans that aren't fans of wrestling, because you could take you know your you know your buddy and his girlfriend who'd never seen wrestling before in their lives, bring them to a freelance show, and they're gonna have the time of their lives. They're gonna want to come every month. Since pro wrestling is a physical sport, what protection um, are in place for your talent health wise? Um, I mean, there it's really kind of just you know you we take care of each other when we're out there that's about it like i mean you know i, I go out there knowing that my, my life is in my opponent's hands and, and vice versa and you know we go out there to put on a good show and to entertain the crowd but also to both come back you know in one piece um i mean if other than other than having your own personal health insurance there, there really is no kind of like safety net in wrestling unfortunately is there like a movement that's that's happening with wrestling with health insurance right now like are people do wrestlers want like health insurance like are they protesting for something like that to happen i feel like that we might be on the way towards something like that i mean with like AEW uh, starting up, they definitely mentioned about having full healthcare benefits for their wrestlers, and I can only imagine, you know, in, with that combined with the that John Oliver uh, video that that they put up, you know, bashing WWE, that they they're gonna have to follow suit, or there's gonna be some sort of public outcry. Uh, I mean, I would imagine so. I mean, there's definitely higher populations of of certain you know uh, ethnicities in in certain areas of the city, but. Uh, we hold all of our events at the uh, Logan Square Auditorium in Logan Square, and uh, you know we have a very diverse crowd. <laughs> There's definitely uh, you notice differences in the United States itself. Mm -hmm. Like in bigger cities, a lot of the crowds are more uh, what they call like smart marky crowds, where like they're just we're here to see good, like we're here to see the guys do their spots, and like we like this guy and the guys that are cool on the internet. Um, but whereas you travel into more rural locations, these people are more just like, uh, we want to see this guy, you know, fight him, get him, uh, kick his butt. You know, they, they're more of like an, like a traditional old school wrestling crowd, which I think is way more fun to, to, to wrestle in front of, um, because they, they just get so into it. Uh, in, in Mexico, it's like, they, they're insane. <laughs> they're just like, uh, they're throwing stuff at you. Like, even if they like you, they're throwing stuff at you, uh, screaming, like, uh, I had so many like girls come up to me like as I'm like coming to the ring like handing me their phones and being like oh like Facebook Facebook <laughs> like it's crazy like you know, it's a whole other world um, and then like England uh, is just very traditional as well and and they just like they just appreciate wrestling they they seem like I feel like people in England are like a very rough crowd uh, we definitely uh, we work with uh, we have uh, there's freelance underground. Uh, is like our, our sister promotion here. Uh, we definitely work with uh, Warrior Wrestling uh, that do their shows out of Marion Catholic High School. Uh, we work with like Gali Lucha Libre. Um, we've worked with Zella Pro, Black Label Pro in, in Northwest Indiana. Um, and, uh, you know, we definitely support uh, AAW and what they do as well. 
When you think about the success of indie wrestling, it has grown the last decade. This year, we have seen Supercard of Honor sold more than 20,000 tickets at Madison Square Garden Arena in New York. Last year, we've seen All In sold more than 10,000 tickets at the Sears Center Arena in Chicago. The last non-WWE wrestling event to draw more than 10,000, 20,000 fans occurred in the mid-90s. Coupled with that, the success of pro wrestlers like Matt Nix and All Elite Wrestling owner Cody Rhodes making the transition to entrepreneurs, it's clear there's more opportunities for the sport of pro wrestling than ever. I think that there is always a, a play. I mean, wrestling's not for everyone. We know that. And, you know, it's hard to sell people on wrestling, but I think that wrestling is for everyone. Whether, you know, whether, you know, what, whatever race, you know, color, creed, you know, you can come to a professional wrestling event and you can be included. You are part of our world and, you know, we welcome you. Once more, you are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio Broadcasting Live from Studio Y, Yolokali in Little Village. I'm Bettina with City Bureau. And I'm Jocelyn. And this show was a, co- a collaboration with City Bureau. Thanks so much, Yolokali. Uh, this is our neighborhood reporting show, City Bureau plus Yolokali on Lumpen Radio. <laughs> Hello, it's me. I haven't heard from you in a while. I hope it's because you're listening and enjoying our amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delightful, funny, breathtaking, amazing, astonishing, highly amazing (gasps) production. If not, you should listen to our radio show, What's Up, again. In the meantime, we'll be working on the next one here in Lumpin' Radio. So stay tuned to our next amazing, outstanding, terrific, wonderful, inspiring, delightful, funny, breathtaking, astonishing, highly amazing broadcast. I hope that you are informed about the awesome parts of life and that you will have a splendid day. Don't forget to listen to us on SoundCloud at Yolokali, on social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr at Yolokali, or visit at yolokaliartsreach.org for more. We are the robots. We are the robots.